Uh, Jeff Winner of the Raymond Scott Archives is here in the studio with me. And we also have very, very special guest, Tom Ray. He's in the studio with us. He's a composer, author, professor, one of the world's leading authorities on electroacoustic music. He worked with Raymond Scott in the early 70s. He was a firsthand observer of the Electronium prototype and was head of the Nashville Division of Scott's Manhattan Research Incorporated. He's a Ph.D. and associate professor at the Department of Electronic Production and Design at Berkeley College of Music. Tom, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, I want to get into the next uh, section of, of Raymond Scott's career, of course, which is very important, his electronic music. Uh, what we're hearing in the background is the piece uh, Little Miss Echo. This is from a, um, a three-volume compilation called Soothing Sounds for Baby. Uh, can Tom, can you talk about this, how this, maybe how this... Uh, or, or maybe Jeff or both of you can mm. talk about how this how this record came to be and how it, and it, and it's a very interesting title soothing sounds for baby it, it kind of makes you wonder was this music written for babies or was it somebody's idea that this was that this was a good idea I think it was evocative uh, like a lot of things that Raymond did I'm not so sure Raymond thought of it as for babies but uh, he certainly anticipated the baby Mozart thing that we're seeing nowadays. Oh, sure, right. You know, the whole idea that uh, infants can listen to music and, and it aids their development and stuff like that. I know that he believed that because he told me that. And uh, the, the genesis of, of who did the album, I don't know. You know, Jeff probably knows better than I do about that. But uh, the idea occurred to me, yeah, you know, this is way ahead of its time the idea of early developmental psychology, right. you know, and Raymond uh, was a guy that was very much in tune with people. Uh, you know, not only did he tell me that he had a doctorate in primitive engineering for doing the crazy instruments that he developed, they were brilliant, but totally idiosyncratic. Uh, but he also had a keen sense of humanity and how what motivated people, things like that. What's interesting, Jeff, is you, you said that and, and I've heard this too: is that, that people with kids say what's amazing is it works. Oh yeah, <laughs> with with babies, you know. And and it's interesting. He he did it in in six month increments: zero to six months, six to twelve, and right. twelve to eighteen. Three separate records, right? For the for the stages of development. Right. I, I would like to caution you though about playing too much of this music on the air right now because um, <laughs> some people listen to the radio while they drive <laughs> and it's designed to put people to sleep. So right. We don't want any lawsuits here right. at uh, your station. <laughs> it's really interesting. Tom, can you talk about some of the sounds that were used on, on these? Did, did you know what instruments he was using in this time period for the soothing sounds? Uh, I think it must have been some of his early Manhattan research instruments. When I first met Raymond, uh, about 1969, something around in that period, uh, I was astonished. He had this entire wall of equipment that he had been using. And when I hear soothing sound for babies, I can't help but think about some of the commercials that Raymond did. You know, I think this idea for soothing sounds came directly from the commercial stuff he had done, uh, the jingles and stuff like that, because he had incorporated electronic means into those uh, before a whole lot of other people. There were very few people around that could do this, but he had, of course, built his own studio, so he was able to do this. That was the motivation uh, to build it. If you've seen a picture of this, it's a rack. You know, it's about 50 feet long, it seems. <laughs> it's huge. Some of those computers take up whole rooms. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it. you go in and you see this kind of history of electroacoustic music uh, instrumentation that he had anticipated and indeed built. I mean, there were uh, sequencers before Buchla or Moog made sequencers. Wow. And as a matter of fact, Bob told me... Bob Moog, that uh, he held off on doing a sequencer because he knew Raymond had done that. He sort of felt like it was Raymond's idea. Is then, that right? Yeah, when Buchla came out with uh, an analog station sequencer, a ring counter, we call it, uh, then Bob said, well, okay, somebody else is going to do that. I'll do it too. You know, so Moog had that. But yeah, I saw that, you know, and recognized it immediately. It's like, oh, that's an in station ring counter analog sequencer, except it was just done with tubes and, you know, and he had crazy wave shapers. For instance, I remember something that had lights in a circle. Oh, yeah. And you had rheostats, and you could turn the individual lights up to different intensities. Then, believe it or not, it had on an arm a rotating photoelectric cell that would go around in this circle <laughs> right? looking at these lights. 
you wow. know, and this thing Incredible. was was capable. If you ran it slow, then it become it became a control situation or a, a sequencer. If you ran it fast, it became a wave shaper. You know, I for see. making right. sounds. So, almost everything that he did was offbeat, innovative, and totally not commercial in a sense of you couldn't replicate Raymond's equipment. Right. You know. Right. Now, I mean, now Bob, Bob Moog and, and Raymond were. Um, they weren't competitive, but no, they, no. they. Do you know? Do you know about that? Because yes. it seemed like they were very collaborative in, in yeah. the sense of in that sense. Well, uh, I mean, I know Raymond seemed to. What I read was that he seemed to. He seemed to hold his cards close to his chest. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. The first time I ever met him, I had to sign a non-disclosure form, but he showed me the most incredible. I think he just, for some reason, uh, we just seemed to hit it off, and I think he realized that I wasn't there to steal his stuff and. Mm-hmm. I was just this kid from Tennessee and doing research and, you know, so forth and so on for my dissertation. And uh, he sort of opened up and other people told me, oh, my God, I'm surprised he showed you anything, you know. But, uh, yeah, the uh, he and Bob had a nice relationship. It was very cordial. As a matter of fact, when Raymond married Mitzi, he drove up to Trumansburg and uh, got married in a chicken coop that uh, Bob had arranged this justice of the peace or some local official yeah, to marry Raymond and Mitzi, and they drove up to Trumansburg and got married in a chicken coop. Oh, you know, I love that. Yeah, so yeah. they had a very uh, close relationship, personal. Uh, there's been a lot written about it that, frankly, is, is incorrect. You know, if you actually talk to Raymond, you talk to Bob, you know, what actually happened. Uh, for instance, uh, people said, well, the Clavivox is uh, an it's a theremin, you know. Well, it's no, it's nothing to that. I, later in the program, I can uh, describe how the Clavivox actually works if you want. Great. But uh, Raymond, uh, as he said, had a doctorate in primitive engineering. Well, now Bob Moog had a PhD in physics, you know. So right. uh, Bob was quote an engineer. Although Bob told me one time, he says, "Well, an engineer." Is somebody who can build for two cents what any damn fool could have built for three cents. So he was not even a great respecter of engineering. He was a physicist, you know, a very heavy guy um, mentally. But uh, Raymond probably needed a good bit of help from Bob about circuitry and things like that. Raymond would have a concept and, you know, go to Bob and you know, how can I do this? You know, I, I need I this this circuit or this kind of thing like that. Well, he must have he must have learned a lot of this on his own. In oh, absolutely. Electri- electrical engineering. You had to know circuitry. Yeah. You had to know you know had yeah. to know resistors and capacitors and, yeah. and 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 Kirchhoff's laws and all these kind of mm-hmm. all these kind of laws he, in order to build this material. Yeah, Raymond has to be the quintessential autodidact. This is a guy that taught himself. I mean, he taught himself audio engineering for Pete's sakes. You know, all the way back to when the only means they had was acetates, you know, discs and stuff like that. And uh, I was just listening in the green room there, you know, to the Munchkin voices. And somebody was saying, well, I don't know how they did that. Well, it really it really was not that difficult. It was done in the same way that the Munchkins were done in 1939. Yeah, you should talk about that. We mentioned that on the phone. How did that how did that happen? Well, I mean, it's just a question. You could run acetates at different speeds. And of course, what happened, this is known as pitch shifting. And the reason they sound like Munchkins is there's elements in the human voice called formants, which are regions of emphasis. And if you shift those formants up, then it sounds, it's the chipmunk effect, as we call it, in sampling. Right. You know, now we have very sophisticated digital stuff where you can shift the frequency, but not the formants. And, you know, on the old tape recorder, of course, duration and pitch were tied to each other. If you ran your tape recorder at a higher speed... Then they both work together. They work right. together, yeah. Right. But You couldn't split out the components. Yeah, right. now with things like fast Fourier transforms and inverse transforms and all this business and, and you know, convolution, we can just parse all that out and do anything we want to. Right, right. You can make it higher in pitch, but and you hear people like Kanye West doing this with Aretha Franklin's right. voice, yeah. Chaka Khan's voice. But now we're talking about stuff that's happening in the with Wizard of Oz and, and of course Raymond Scott being one of the early yeah. early electronic music pioneers. Incredible. See, I, I see this as a continuum, and to me, Raymond is just there. You know, I mean, he's he's ubiquitous. You know, if you if you look at almost any place. 
where Raymond has been, uh, you see what we're doing today in many ways. Mm-hmm. For instance, right. uh, everybody knows John Cage's celebrated piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. Right. You the know, silent piece. Yeah, the silent piece where the pianist comes out. And, of course, it's not announced to the audience. That's what makes it oh, a right, lot of right. fun. <laughs> you know, the, the pianist comes out, and he sits down at the piano, and he opens the fall board, and he... You know, uh, massages his hands and he uh, ups and downs the seat, and everybody after a while is sitting there thinking, "What's what's going on here?" You know, <laughs> and of course the the notion is that the sounds that the audience makes and the ambient environment and da 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 da, according to Cage, that's the music. And uh, I, I find it interesting that uh, in academic circles, of course, that's canonized. I mean, that's everybody knows right. four minutes and thirty three seconds. Very few people realize. That Raymond had done this with the quintet. Is that right? They had done pieces where they mimed playing and made no sound whatsoever. And way back to that, long before four minutes and 33 yep. seconds. Well, he was ahead of his time in many areas. Let's listen to a little more of this. This is uh, more from Soothing Sounds for Baby, and we'll hear a little bit from DJ Spooky. Tom, thanks for coming in. Yep. Thank you, Jeff. is really intriguing because our culture is about hyper fast you know accelerated kind of relationship to information relationship to time and space that's very very fractured but at the same time relentlessly changing so everyone's updating everyone's tweeting facebooking whatever and that kind of fragmentation um you know it was a whole different way of thinking about the way a composer would try and like pull someone into a composition. The the whole notion of ambient music, you could argue, you know, Eric Satie, or you could argue um, Debussy's La Mer. There, there's a lot of compositions that came out that played with space and time in a way of like suspension of progressions, you know. So I like writing. I'm not against them. I just feel like um, it's it, let's give credit to a little bit more of an old school kind of take on things. Somebody had sent me a link to uh, a recording of Gene Shepard doing a radio monologue about the record Soothing Sounds for Baby when it came out in 1962. And uh, he was so funny. He he was talking about being disturbed by it and how these things you're supposed to play to your baby. It's like it's not even played by musicians. It's all made with a machine. It must have really originated with Raymond Scott you know, making music, you know, enjoying himself making music and then kind of came up with the idea of the lullabies and maybe, you know, went in that direction or began to conceive of them as such. One thing that's interesting about, you know, Raymond Scott as an experimental composer, it's really just more that he's an independent party who's interested in making music and isn't worried about how it sits into some existing institution. Thank you. 
The music you are listening to is completely electronic and has been created and produced on equipment designed and manufactured by Manhattan Research, a division of Raymond Scott Enterprises Incorporated. to the wrong notes. Does that mean that there's something wrong with me? So I think he was, you know, uh, and also how he's interested in things that didn't have tonal centers. So I don't think he was interested in the strictness of serial technique, but in things like uh, baseline generator, uh, he does these kind of chromatic, chaotic things, where he's in, but he wants it to have this kind of syncopated, funky, jazzy rhythm, which was usually not something you associate with 12-tone music or atonal music, uh, that he was a jazz man and had that in his blood and was interested in atonality, did something that had a had syncopated metrical rhythms, but with no tonal center.
20th century music is an interesting situation because you have to remember there's two developments that really changed the way people respond to music. One is noise and the rise of very complex ways of looking at sound. Um, like if you look at uh, Stravinsky, if you look at um, serialism, you know, there's a whole relationship that people were thinking about with sequencing sound. And Raymond Scott, what's interesting about him is he made immensely um, accessible music. Now, that's not the problem. I mean, it wasn't like he was trying to be super science. It was more a matter of that he had control of the computer systems he was making, you know, and most composers would just be like, look, I got a tool that's called a violin. I have a tool that's called a cello. And they're not going to make a cello from scratch. They're going to go out to a store and get one, um, which is fine. The same thing happens with computer software. You're going to just download what you need and edit whatever songs you want. But if you're going to make a computer from scratch, which I doubt very many people could do, um, that's, you know, that's an intense kind of skill set. So when you look at Raymond Scott, it wasn't just music. He had command of hardware, command of software, and ability to translate uh, composition and notation, you know, like the normal code of, of what a musician would read. That's cool. I mean, I was just like blown away. I mean, that's, you, you got to realize that's, those are radically different skill sets. You know, so if somebody can read music, that's one thing, and that's a certain kind of literacy. But if somebody's going to be like, yo, I know how to take the computer apart, remake the computer, and then above all, make it my own version of a computer, I mean, that's, that's like in the stratosphere at this point, you know? Well, this is idea number 35. Uh, here is the first note, A. The second, B. This is C sounding now. D sounding. E. F. G. H now. This is idea number 36. Pitches are the same. Pattern is the same as the preceding one. Crossbar is different. And I made a note on the uh, notebook of all the uh, knobs, or most of the knobs. Uh, here are the notes one at a time. slow performance of the attacks. And from now on, I'm just going to be improvising. Yeah, we're listening to this here online, and, and Tom was just discussing what he's doing. Can you can you describe, Tom, what he's... This is the electronium he's demonstrating. Yep. Yeah, and uh, this almost certainly is the prototype that I saw when I first met Raymond. And uh, what was astonishing uh, in context, I'd just been to, to see Wendy Carlos, I'd just been to see well, whom everybody knows, and I'd been to see Eric Sade, which some people don't know, who had done... Uh, the old ABC logo uh, on the Omar to know it goes but up 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 you know and, and done a lot of jingles and stuff like that and he and Raymond had done this kind of work and uh, Eric had told me well now Raymond is touched with genius you know when you meet him and I walked in and of course Carlos had been doing these wonderful things one line at a time with a Moog synthesizer and Raymond goes over to the electronium and I, I'm, I'm looking and I'm thinking well, where the heck do you play this thing? <laughs> You know, there's no keyboard. No, there's no keyboard. You know, there, there's this incredible kind of U-shaped thing that would go around you when you sat down, uh, and there's this one little micro switch. And so he goes over there and he says, "Well, now I'm going to have the electronium suggest a theme." And he flips a couple of switches up on the panel, and then he engages the micro switch and advances it. You know, and it goes da 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 da. You know, well, I'm going to make the intervals larger now. You know, da 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 da. And uh, and so I began to ask questions. So he, had, he had ways of of, of, of varying interval. Oh, yeah. and, and, mm -hmm. and speed mm -hmm. and these type of things. So, so he had yeah. control over all the parameters. Right? Yeah, exactly. With, with I no mean, keyboard. It was all switches. Oh, it was all, it was all switches. Okay. And uh, the basis of it, my understanding, and even at that time, it wasn't so much that Raymond didn't trust me, 
But he was sort of like the story you told about, oh, somebody did a, 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 a cartoon music with your music, and he said, yeah, they did that. Right. He, he he never looked backwards, Raymond. He was always looking forward. Just like all the great artists, Miles yeah, ex- Davis. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's, right. They weren't trying to reprise what they'd right. done in the past. Exactly right. He was just, I'm just moving forward. So he wouldn't even really talk too much about the technology because I was interested. But the best I could understand, the original version of the uh, Electronium had what was known as a Raymac uh, drum memory. That's an IBM thing. And it literally rotates. I mean, of course, disk drives rotate. Sure. They rotate very fast. Uh, these kinds of things were, I think, the best I can understand, more like a cylinder. you know. Okay. And then there became a smaller one uh, eventually for the Electronium. But you could place tons and tons of data for that era, tons and tons. You know, Now it'd be insignificant. So the best guess I have is that Raymond had patterns you know, Raymond was a thorough musician. I mean, he, he was, in essence, a school musician. When you listen to his music, you realize you can't do that if you don't understand right. music. Well, he was a school musician that, that picked up the electronics on his own. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's absolutely. The thing about it. Yeah. That's very hard to do, to learn, well, to learn he, circuitry he, on your he own. He had no choice. Even in my me, my generation, uh, there was nobody around to teach me uh, music technology. Right. My composition teacher, uh, Gil Trithall at George Peabody College, the Moog came and there was a big box and we took, you know, opened it up and said there wasn't even a manual. Right. Right. You know, so <laughs> Raymond was even earlier than that. Imagine he had right. to actually piece things and together. His own tools, like yes. DJ Spooky was saying. Not only yeah. did he did he write his own music, he created his own tools to write that yeah. music. Yeah, it's very, it's very much of an engineering skill. He started yeah. Manhattan Research. In 1946. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of resources were available <laughs> yeah, in 1946? Right. Nobody even knew what electronic music was. No. Then. Well, you it certainly you, you certainly didn't even have transistors. Right. When the Moog synthesizer came out in '64, Bob was straining the capabilities of transistors at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, and using uh, Bob didn't invent voltage control; he systematized it for analog Same. voltage control synthesizers. Uh, but uh, Transistors were pretty young. I mean, Bardeen and those guys at Bell Labs, of course, there had been experimental things, and then there had been some around. But in actual use by people and practical things, it took a long time. But Raymond, good Lord, you know, this is a guy that has to sort of take a radio and turn it into a musical instrument. Right. <laughs> Well, let's get into this. You mentioned before that, that a lot of that soothing sounds work came from the commercials he did. And, and, I, and speaking with you, Jeff, you mentioned something about how it was really interesting listening to this commercial. It's like a Fortune 500 list oh, yeah. of companies, IBM, oh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. all the blue chips. Well, that's because he had no competition, except maybe Eric's a day. Well, how did these happen? Did the IBM? Did they? How did he get these clients? Did he? Did he look? At, did he search for them? And they? Or did they come to him? I, I think it's like I said. He was the only game in town, at least on on the East Coast. Right. I mean, right. you know, not many people had invented and built eight rooms full of equipment right. at that point. <laughs> Maybe that's why he kept his card card so close. Uh, I think that. that's part of it, and it's also interesting to note that by the time I had met him in late sixties. Of course, now the Moog synthesizer had come along, Buchla, Synchet in Rome, and some other things, you know. And I, he was clearly disappointed that he had sort of lost his franchise. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he, I we see. even talked right. about it. You know, he says, well, you know, he says, nowadays anybody can make these sounds, you know. So, mm-hmm. You know, he, in other words, he he made them out of whole cloth. And All then right. these things came along. But this is this is the way technology yeah, works, right. of sure. course. I mean, he just didn't quite understand, you know, whether that's the nature of technology. And it's interesting that, that, that going back to Irwin's early story, is that he, he was so successful with your hit parade and then put all that money, mm-hmm. I mean, must have been tens of thousands of dollars into these. Oh, into these oh yeah. More, yeah. More. Easily. Right. Right. Easily. Well, let's listen to this. This is uh, Autolite Spark Plugs, great, uh, great composition by, uh, by Raymond Scott for Autolite, um, one of the many commercials he did. Uh, during this time frame. We're talking about uh, 50s and 60s here. Raymond Scott. The first spark plug that cleans itself while you drive. Bow! And it's Autolite, Autolite, Autolite. Oh boy, do these plugs clean themselves? Pow! The firing tip is longer than usual, extends much deeper into your engine, so carbon and lead deposits that collect on just plain plugs are burned away by the flame. Bow! With Autolite, you save money. Jingle, 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 jingle. With Autolite, you save mileage. Go, 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 go. With Autolite, you save power. Zoom, 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 zoom. No matter how many you need in your car. 
four or six or eight, no matter how you drive or how far. Autolite Spark Plugs are great. Get Autolite for your automobile, the spark plug that cleans itself while you drive. Oh, Autolite! It's not a question of stopping it so much as just keeping up with it. At IBM, our work is related to the paperwork explosion. Specifically, the paperwork in an office. explosion. There's always been a lot of paperwork in an office. But today there is more paperwork than ever before. There's more than ever before. Certainly more than there used to be. In the past there always seemed to be enough time and people to do the paperwork. There always seemed to be enough time to do the paperwork. There always seemed to be enough people better to do the paperwork. There always seemed to be enough time and people to do the paperwork. But today, there isn't. Today, there isn't enough time. Today, there aren't enough people. Today, everyone has to spend more time on paperwork. Management has to spend more time on paperwork. Secretaries have to spend more time on paperwork. Companies have to spend more time on paperwork. Salesmen, brokers, engineers, accountants, lawyers, supervisors, doctors, executives, teachers, office managers, bankers, foremen, bookkeepers, everybody has to spend more time on paperwork. Seems to me we could use some help. I understand that IBM has a quarterly. The ad says the IBM MT-ST can type error-free. The IBM Office Products Division representative explained how it worked. That IBM has always been one of the leaders in the field of office. Last week I was talking to a guy about a machine that IBM makes. It's called an MT-ST. Dictation is recorded on a magnetic belt. Runs off a battery. It's right here in this magazine. This is an instrument called the Clevervox. You can smoothly glide and pitch from any note to any other note in its three octave range by merely pressing piano style keys. And for vibrato, a pedal is pressed. Lightly for a small degree of vibrato, deeper for deeper vibrato. To vary the vibrato speed, a knob is turned. Here are some of the new sounds possible on the Clavivox in which you'll notice that now we can get different kinds of attacks. There is no pitch ambiguity. The key is pressed for the chosen note, and the pitch glide is at the speed the key is pressed. Here are some accurately controlled slower glides and pitch. The clever box alone in a nine-note row. Two groups of nine notes, but sounded together in contrary motion. Here next is a feeling of movement, a feeling of traveling, rather exciting, upon which is superimposed the original nine-note Clavivox theme. (laughs) 
And finally, a modification of the one just heard, the same feeling of movement being better established, longer established, before the introduction of the nine clavivox notes. You're listening to WZBC Newton. My name is Brian Carpenter. We're playing a special on Raymond Scott. Tom Ray is here. Jeff Winter is here. And Tom worked with Raymond Scott in the 70s. Tom, can you talk about that piece? That was a demonstration of the Clavivox. Is that right? Yeah, the Clavivox was, uh, again, one of those one-of-a-kind unique things that Raymond did. And its real claim to fame was two-part. First of all, uh, if you think about synthesizers and you do something called glide, well, you play a note. And then you play another note, and then you wait in a certain time constant with a little RC, a little uh, resistance capacitance thing, a low-pass filter. And it glides instead of stepping. From note to note. Yeah, yeah. but the point of it is it's ex post facto. You play a note, then you hit another note, and then you don't know exactly when the glide's going to get there. Well, this doesn't work like musical instruments. On a cello, when you do a, a portamento or you know, or the voice, you go, yeah, and you put it right where you want it. In other words, the end is controllable, un, uh, under control. controllable. So the keyboard of the Clavivox, the way this would work is you would put your, your fingers on two notes and rock back and forth so that you had absolute control about, well, I'm going to get there now with my portamento or my glide. That in other was, words, you don't know where that end is. You have to find it. You don't know where the yeah. end is on a synthesizer, but you did on the clavivox. Oh, I see. Right. Uh, the other th- the other thing that made it uh, unique for its time, particularly this left hand controller, had emphasis. It had uh, it had a, a damping, which is like a jazz player sucking up notes. You know, you don't play all notes equally loud. Uh, so you could you could dooby dooby doo. You could you could phrase with it. You know, which wow. synthesizers are just bang, 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 bang. It's discreet at this time. Well, I mean, uh, there is on are enveloping considerations on all instruments. This is one of the reasons they sound different from each other. Some people think, well, it's a sawtooth, it's a sawtooth. Well, no, the system has envelope generators, it has filters, it has amps. They all have characteristics. Right. But you could, you could, you could phrase. You could, yeah, you could do you could phrasing, phrase. Yeah, and and of course, you know, this vocalize goes, and these type of yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, this goes back. Long before when I met Raymond, he had actually had several models of this thing. Uh, the idea of it starting out as a theremin is because it had these ultrasonic uh, oscillators, and then you heard the difference tone. That's how a I theremin, high-frequency oscillators, beyond human hearing, but you heard a difference tone. Now, you were saying that there were only three of these. Yeah, and, and he to would, my knowledge. And, he would con- and they, were, they were buggy, too, right? He would cannibalize these, well, these instruments. It's it's not so much... <laughs> As I talk about to my students at Berkeley about software, there's turkeys and there's bugs. There's bugs, which is like, oh, my gosh, my stuff didn't work right. the way I said it would work. And then there are turkeys like, that's exactly the way we designed it to work, but it's a mistake. <laughs> and I, I hate to say it. I mean, I loved yeah. Raymond, you yeah. know, and, and I appreciate everything he ever did. But the Clavivox, the design for that one was a turkey because it had a helical vein, you know, uh, Imagine uh, a helix laying on its side, and then the keys have little uh, prongs that go up and touch this vein and move it to different rotational Mm. attitudes. And at the end of this helix, there's a film strip that is opaque to transparent in a very graded gradient sort of way, and there's a photoelectric cell. So it's (laughs) very physically, it's very fragile. Yeah, very fragile because. As you played notes, if you pressed down too hard, then it actually had little, uh, what's this brown stuff? It's not really wood. It's a composition kind of mm. stuff. That's what the little prongs were like on the end. That's and, of course, they were always getting bent. They're like little, dowels. Yeah, kind of yeah. And, you know, I, I was taking this around trying to show it in studios in Nashville, you know, that, that business about my being the Nashville right. uh, branch of his enterprise. You know, I I sort of knew this is this is never going to work. Yeah. Not mass producible. No, not no. mass producible. Not only that, nobody could maintain it. Right. I could barely do it. I knew how it worked, uh, but I just my motive was just to stay in contact with Raymond. Now let's let's talk about something else here, which is that someone at uh, Motown was interested in this. I guess it was was Barry yeah. Gordy. Is that right? Oh yeah. Can you yep. can you give me the story on that, Jeff? Yeah. Well, Barry Gordy saw um, an article about the electronium and variety. And he was intrigued by the notion of a machine that could write music. So he showed up at Raymond's studio 
and said, um, I'd like to see a demonstration. And he was very I impressed. See. And he said, build me one. And eventually that turned into a job offer. He asked Raymond to be the head of electronic research and development for Motown. And after living his entire life in New York, Raymond and his third wife, Mitzi, packed up and moved to the other coast. And that's what he did for the 1970s, was work for wow, Motown. amazing. So Motown was interested in um, a music a music generator. So, that's right. Ideas they, for melodies. Yeah, they, they didn't necessarily want to record the machine right. and release that. It was more the notion of quantifying the, the songwriting process. Right. And if, if this machine could suggest a bass line or a melody or a drum pattern, and then their studio musicians would play it on the record. I want to I play a really... I, I, yeah, I might say, uh, I think that's exactly what Barry Gordy had in mind, but I think there was a little bit of electronium in the woodpile. I can't prove this, and I can't even quote chapter and verse, but occasionally I'll hear stuff from Motown and I'll say, I swear that's electronium. Electronic stuff, you know, mm -hmm. that was happening. So there may have been a little bit of a motiv motivation uh, to not get rid of musicians, but to have an alternative way of making music. Also, I wouldn't consider Raymond a, a melodist. I would consider him a colorist. Hmm. And the, the electronium What's the was, distinction? Well, the, the electronium is not real good at making up melodies as such. Uh, it's real good at making up patterns. Uh, it, it's good at colors, if you will, and, hmm. and rhythmic kinds of ideas but that's kind of the way i think color palettes yeah that yeah makes sense. kind of yeah. the way i think of his music sort of, anyway yeah. right. if you think about his music it, he's not a cole porter or an embraceable you kind of a right. composer right. you know no nobody covers his melodies particularly and this is one of the reasons they can't cover raymond because his style is so it's unique and it's rhythmic bursts and very this, idiosyncratic yeah this yeah. counterpoint kind of idea yeah. that he did with reeds and stuff like that yeah so that's interesting that's an interesting point that that uh yeah, that the, the I wonder I wonder which records those Motown those Motown, I, I mean you know what are you talking about the Temptations you're I've never I've never even the background it, it's it's just in passing you yeah, know I've right. never thought oh my gosh I've got to document this because I could never prove it anyway prove it. Yeah. but I've just listened to some things and and even uh, it, it strikes me that some of the textures there's a particular kind of a puck 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 that the electronium does those envelopes that are so different to my ears than than most of the synthesizers yeah. that I wonder, well, maybe they then did that on synthesizers. It's but more attacky. Yeah, yeah, it sounded absolutely. like somebody right. had heard the electronium and the fellow out there now, uh, Jeff knows his name, uh, who's actually trying to put the electronium back into working condition. I got, Is that Mark Mothersbaugh? No, no, Mark owns it, I Mark think. Owns Mark owns it. There's a restoration attempt being made by Darren Davison. Yeah, I see. I want to play a, a. This is a really interesting soundtrack created by Raymond Scott for a commercial for Buffer and Pain Relievers. Oh yeah, in '67 called Memories, directed and narrated by Jim Henson. Right. The, the puppeteer. Now Henson was doing experimental films mm -hmm. pretty early on, and I wonder if. Do you know if we're going to play this Memories thing? Do you know if, if Henson wrote the script for this or or? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, is that right? This is amazing. Let's let's play this. Jeff Winter, Tom Ray, thank you so much for coming. Thanks, it's been Brian. great. Glad to be here. You know, I've got stacks of old memories filed inside my head. Would you like to see some? Over here, I keep childhood memories. Down here are memories of my family. That's Laura, my wife. Those are our kids. Hey, here's a nice memory. This was a picnic we went on last fall. The kids were playing, and Laura and I just sat and talked. Wait a second, what's this? Oh, yeah, they had a headache that day. Isn't it strange what a headache can do to a beautiful day? Of course, when I decided to do something about it, I took buffering. You know that buffering really works fast. It's got something extra in it, so it goes to work even faster than plain aspirin. You can get back fast to the things that make nice memories. Funny, I almost forgot about that headache. It lasted such a short time. Fast-working buffering. Remember? Thank <laughs> you. 